What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Modern Day Sniper Podcast. Welcome uh, for everyone that's uh, listening again. And if you are new to the Modern Day Sniper Podcast, welcome. And uh, if again, if you're new to it, Modern Day Sniper Podcast, what that is, is uh, a podcast for guys that are in the long range space looking for relevant information. You know, whether you're a long range hunter, um, professional military law enforcement sniper, long range competitor, or just an enthusiast or hobbyist. You know, we try to give you guys from our experience uh, what you're going to need in far as the tools to make you successful um, with whatever you plan on doing with long range shooting. Um, I've got Kalen here, my co-host, and we've got a special episode for you guys. What's going on, Kalen? Nothing, man. I'm glad to be here and um, I'm excited about this conversation. Uh, great to meet you, Ilya, and I'm, I'm very much looking forward to this one. I'm gonna have a blast here. Yeah, so we've got Ilya. Um, Ilya, what? How do you pronounce your last name? Koshkin. Koshkin. Um, and oh, that's better than most. <laughs> we are going to be uh, talking optics, right? Uh, a very, very, uh, I shouldn't say source subject, but a very misunderstood subject in the realm of what we do. Uh, a lot of times, like we talked about right before the podcast, is uh, guys that are trying to get in this space you know, um, are told you, your, your optic needs to be three times worth your rifle. Right. Uh, and stuff like that in order for, um, you know, you to get the best bang for your buck and, and whatnot. But I think, um, with the advances of technology in the last, I, I'd say 15 years, I mean, optics have come a long way. And, and again, we're going to dive into that, but, uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk about this. Um, I, like we talked about, I, I think, I have a base understanding of how an optic works that I can just kind of not regurgitate, but just explain to our students at our level, you know, uh, so to not to confuse them. But I think there's guys out there that um, have a base level understanding like I do and want to just a deeper science of, of how it all works and what we're looking for when we're purchasing an optic. Agreed. There, there is a tremendous amount of misinformation out there and there's a lot of, um, I would say there's there's a tremendous amount of brand loyalty out there, right? And that can really, really uh, way uh, too way too much sure. more than all of those brands deserve. <laughs> this is going to be a good one. <laughs> Gotta love uh, Ilya. Have to love the 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 Eastern European frankness. I love it. Thank you. All right, where shall we start? Oh, uh, Ilya, I think it'd be good to start uh, kind of, uh, again, just a real quick wave to tops of, of your background and uh, what you do for a living. All right. Well, uh, I'm mostly bullshit for a living. Not, not a bad way to go, really. Uh, I have a background in uh, applied physics. I'm an optical physicist by education. Uh, for my day job, I run a company that makes all sorts of optical, electro-optical test equipment, things that test and calibrate um, cameras, targeting systems, primarily military stuff, airborne things of all sorts, but we do make also rifle scope testers, for example, and some of the rifle scopes that you see around are tested at the factories on our equipment. So my field of expertise is primarily in measuring and understanding how stuff works, uh, more so than on the design end. How did you get into specifically rifle scopes? Because I think that your side job, from my understanding from Will, is that you essentially test optics uh, through rifle scope optics um, throughout the industry? Uh, I don't so much test it throughout the industry. I consult a little bit here and there, more on configuring stuff. Um, when I was toward the tail end of 
college, I think. Uh, I got into shooting. So I got into shooting in a very, very backwards way. I didn't grow up with guns. I grew up in the Soviet Union. The gun ownership was not really encouraged. Something about totalitarian regimes that doesn't like that. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm sort of a classic martial artist. So all this stuff was always interesting. And I went to a shooting range. I rented a Beretta that I despise to this day. I bought 50 rounds of ammo. I fired 50 shots from seven yards away. Not a single one of them touched paper. <laughs> um, I don't handle failure very well. So here we are. Um, and that was basically it. I bought a couple of guns and started practicing. Uh, the first scope I bought was a cheap leaper scope. And that was what, you know, mid-90s. It promptly fell apart. I hit the internet for some uh, quick answers on what's happening in there. And the answers I got were asinine. <laughs> and I'm being generous here. Um, uh, the type of stuff you're talking about, right? Everybody who's saying, well, my great-great-great-grandfather used this scope to shoot the biggest buck in the nearest three counties. And there haven't been anything made better since. That kind of crap. Um, the usual bullshit, all the usual fables, like everything came out and I looked at it. I didn't know anything about rifle scopes, but I am an optics guy, you know, it's not really rocket science. Well, rocket science is also not rocket science. But anyway, so I started digging into this and talking about stuff and publishing my impressions of different scopes online. And then the guys from a company called SWFA uh, stepped in and they said, anything you want to buy, if we have it in stock, we'll give you a hefty discount. And that allowed me to buy optics, play with them, and sell them without losing money. I never thought of it as a side job, but it was just a hobby. I didn't try to monetize it until, I don't know, almost 20 years later. Uh, and that's sort of how I got into this. Um, different uh, rifle scope companies started sending me stuff for review, hoping to get some publicity. Um, that works both ways, because I'm ultimately on the side of the consumer. Some got good reviews, some got bad reviews. Uh, Quite a few companies who got really, I'm not out to badmouth anyone, but the product has to stand on its own merit. Right. Um, so some companies took it as adults and got better. I'm sort of responsible for at least three different design changes in Vortex products, for example, just because I ripped them a new one nicely. Some will, you know, not talk to me to date. And, you know, I can give you a list of companies if my body is ever found in a ditch, you know, behind, on outside, outside the building, <laughs> I can give you the top three. Right. Uh, so that's uh, that's pretty much it and then I started a website started a YouTube channel started writing for guns and ammo comparatively recently and more for special interest publications you know precision rifle shooter AR-15 and found that I I, I sit somewhere in the middle between technical and non-technical and the part that I find really rewarding is explaining potentially technical things to non-technical people in a way they can understand that I, I get a kick out of doing that. That's awesome because that's what, that's what we do at modern day sniper. We're communicators yeah. of information. And exactly. I, I love the, I love the, the standpoint that you're coming um, from when you say that you're on the side of the consumer yeah. and that's really, really important. Um, and that's something that, that, you know, modern day sniper is, is all about as well. We're on the side of the consumer. There's a million and one different ways to skin a cat, especially when it comes to the optical world. And I couldn't, you know, we can all agree on the fact that um, there, there are some optics that are clearly better than others, but then we look at that and we say, okay, well, really how much of that is truly a perception of quality? 
Um, and, and the perception of quality was something that I was exposed to that term. I was exposed to that at, at Magpul because, um, you know, the, the Magpul product, they, the, the design engineering and all of those final last checks, it, it all has to do with, with a perception of quality because that is what the customer sees. It doesn't really matter what is under the hood, so to speak, as long as that perception of quality is there, hey, then I'll buy it. No problem. If, you, if it looks good, it feels good, and you tell me it's good, sounds good. Let's do it, especially if it has a reputation. But we all know, all three of us know that that's not always the case. And, and I'm, I'm really excited well, to hear what you have to say. I will say this. So some of the cheapest scopes come with some of the nicest boxes. <laughs> you got a good point there. <laughs> that's a that's a great that's a great point. I'm gonna write so, that. Uh, Ilya, I wanna I wanna break it down for especially some of our new guys. It's just just the simple functions of how an optic works, right? Like what what um, you know. I would say, let's say, let's say a, an optic with adjustable turrets, which is most common for uh, long range shooters. So let's set some uh, ground rules. A rifle scope is three different optical systems in one, okay? And uh, here is, let's see, here's a variable scope. I don't know if you guys can see it well. It's kind of a dark background. I have a dark shirt, right? This is a March 542. From the objective end here to about the turrets, that's objective lens system. From the turrets to just behind the magnification ring is the erector system. From uh, that point to the tail end is the eyepiece. Okay, these are the three optical systems in there. Mm -hmm. Okay, you can also think of it as uh, there's a front focal plane generally under the turrets or close to it, second focal plane just behind the magnification ring. Everything in front of the front focal plane is objective, between the focal planes is a rector, behind the second focal plane is the eyepiece. Okay, these three things do different things, right? The objective lens system is basically like a lens of a camera. It has, uh, it looks at the scene out there and uh, forms a very small image in the front focal plane, where normally in most tactical scopes these days, you will have some sort of physical reticle in there that gets superimposed on the image generated by the uh, objective lens system, okay? that combined image of the two together. And this is uh, where you need, uh, one of the things you need with most precision scopes is the side focus, the parallax. What parallax does, it makes sure that the image generated by the objective lens system is in the same physical location as where the reticle is. Because the reticle, you cannot move it front and back. You can move it up, down, left, right. That's how you do window elevation adjustment. You can't move the reticle front and back. Okay. You guys with me? Yep. Yes. Okay. I, right. I actually, let me jump in. I, the Absolutely. definition that you just gave for parallax is most, is, is probably the clearest definition I've ever yes, heard uh, of. That's, that's fantastic because the, if you could repeat that real quick for us, that would be awesome. Um, go ahead, please, Elliot. Absolutely. So I started doing these little educational videos before I tried to monitor. I need to redo them in a more, in a better production right away. You know what? I should uh, I should come visit you guys. We should spend the day and, and and do this with the whiteboard, do it the right way. Oh yeah, and do a series yeah. of videos on all of these technical things where it works. All right, objective lens of the rifle scope, objective lens system forms an image. 
in forms an image in the front focal plane. That's how the front focal plane is defined. The front focal plane radical has to coincide exactly with the front and back fore and aft location of that image formed by the objective lens. In a conventional hunting scope that does not have any sort of adjustable objective or side focus, that uh, the radical is front focal plane radical will only coincide with the image for a particular distance you're looking at. Depending on how far away from the rifle scope you're looking at, this image will be formed in a slightly different place. So the side focus turret moves its location a little bit so that you can exactly superimpose it on the radical. I'm that was probably that's a clean explanation. Thanks, Ilya. Absolutely. I aim to please. You, you, you uh, know, because you, you always hear like when people are trying to define parallax, you're like, parallax is where, you know, you move your head and you see the radical dance around the target without any like understanding why that's happening. Parallax, so there is cause and effect. Parallax, parallax is the effect. The uh, radical and image not being located in the same plane is the cause. So once we've got this, uh, and like I said, I'm, for now I'm talking about front focal plane uh, rifle scopes. Once we've got this image and the reticle in the same place, uh, that image is then gets picked up by the erector system. The erector system does two things. It does, first of all, uh, when uh, the objective lens recreates that image, it's kind of upside down. And the erector system pushes it through several different lenses to uh, orient it, erect it. To, to set, uh, to, so in the second focal plane, it's in the right configuration and the magnification to a significant degree also happens there. Whether it's a fixed power scope or a variable power scope, you still have an erector system. It is simpler in a fixed power scope because you don't need to change uh, magnification. In a variable power scope where you do need to change magnification when you rotate that magnification ring, some of the lenses within the erector system move with respect to each other. And that movement can be fairly complicated if you look at uh, uh, what an erector tube looks like. Uh, I, need to, I need to tell so the guys at Vortex have one of the AMG scopes put in a clear Delrin tube. I need to see if they can send me a picture and I'll, I'll post it. It shows how this stuff happens. Um, but basically, when you change the magnification, some lenses move around and change the relationship in the image size between the first and second focal plane. Okay. Right. Typically, the size of the image in the second focal plane is about an order of magnitude eight to 10 times larger than in the first focal plane, but that relationship changes depending on where you set your magnification. In the second focal plane, sometimes you have an additional radical or dual focal plane scopes. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you only have in the second focal plane. Uh, once the image is fully formed in the second focal plane, what the eyepiece does, it projects it out to your eye. The word projected out is not accidental. You can do an experiment sometime. Uh, what comes out is a collimated beam. What that means is that uh, do you guys own a camera with a uh, interchangeable lens system? Yes. 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 <clears throat> yeah. So if you take uh, the lens off of your camera and put just camera back with, with just the image sensor where your eye instead of where your eye is supposed to be, you will not see an image on it. It'll look just a blur or just a white spot of light. Okay. To to pull an image out of what comes out of a rifle scope, you need another lens. Your eye has that lens. Your eye has a lens. 
and an image sensor. Your retina is effectively an image sensor, right? And you have a lens. So a rifloscope is called a focal system. There's collimated beam coming in, collimated beam coming out. The purpose of a rifloscope in many ways is to make something far away look like it is closer, but your eye needs to be sitting in a muscular state of maximum relaxation. Maximum relaxation is when we're looking at something fairly far away. Okay. If the, uh, you know how, um, if you have a phone, right? You have it very close to your eye. Uh, it starts getting blurry. You get it to the point where now you can see it fairly sharp. You guys are probably younger than I am, so you can you have better close focus. If you spend too much time looking at something this close to you, your eye will get tired, right? Because that's when the muscles in your eye are at their most fatig fatiguing state. So rifloscope, when it's properly adjusted, makes everything look like it's sufficiently far away where your eye can be completely relaxed. <clears throat> okay? So that's why we call it a, a projection, right? The image you are actually looking at in the rifloscope, right? If this is this, so the second focal point is somewhere here. When you're looking at the rifloscope, the image is actually here. But the optics and the eyepiece trick your eye into thinking that this image is way far away mm. to make it more relaxing and more forgiving for you to uh, look through the rifloscope. It's almost like you're looking at a screen. Uh, almost, yeah. But yeah, here's yeah. a catch, right? So if you look, for example, you guys use thermals, right? Mm -hmm. I have. <clears throat> you have, good. So typical thermal rifle scope, when you're, there is a micro display in the back, but you're not looking straight at that display. There is an eyepiece optic. The same exact thing. It makes the display, the image of the display look like it's far away so that your eye doesn't get too fatigued. Mm -hmm. If you... Uh, compact rifle scopes out there they introduced where they decided to go cheap so there's just a little display in the back and you're looking straight at it that is the stupidest idea known to man not only is your eye getting tired but you're losing all your situational awareness because you're you're focusing on something very close to you that means your eye is not seeing anything around you in any sort of a sharp way so that's basically how a rifle scopes work takes an, an image massages it superimposes a reticle and then spits it out as if it's still far away. Uh, I really like how this conversation is going. <clears throat> Let's talk about the mechanical system now, which a lot of times people, I guess, then will, I guess, focus into, uh, you know, rifle scope, actual like mm -hmm. different rifle scope brands. But now let's talk about the mechanical function of, uh, of the rifle scope. So a rifle scope is an optomechanical device, and it's generally more complicated from a mechanical standpoint than optical. In many ways, so the optics, as you go to high magnification ratios, the optics uh, do get somewhat involved. The uh, there are really three mechanical things happening in a rifle scope, right? Uh, one is this parallax adjustment that we talked about, right? Usually, in most rifle scope, it's this turret on the back. You rotate, you rotate this turret, and that uh, gets the uh, parallax worked out. Basically, moves the I guess the front uh, FFP reticle to coincide with the image of the objective lens. The other things you move are the adjustment turret, the windage and elevations. What they do, they uh, look at that. So the erector system here is sitting inside its own tube. Sometimes it's two or three tubes inside each other. And what the windage and elevation turrets do, they basically move the front of the erector tube up, down, left, right. The reticle is fixed to the front of this erector tube. 
the image generated by the objective lens is grossly oversized uh, compared to the size of the physical size of the reticles. So why? Because if uh, when the general elevation adjustments are exactly centered out, what you are seeing is a small central portion of the image generated by the objective lens, right? And when you need to dial, let's say, some elevation, you will change elevation to it, and the reticle will physically move within that oversized image created by the objective lens. So you're sampling a different portion of the field of view of the objective lens. Now, this is going to be the concept that nobody really grasps because it's simple but not intuitive. When a lens, like an objective lens or rifle scope or a photographic lens, forms an image behind it, the size of the image is obviously directly related to the overall field of view of the lens. Let's say lens sees, I don't know, 100 feet at 100 yards, right? Mm -hmm. If you're not looking at the entire image, if you're looking at only a central portion, you're not looking at 100 feet at 100 yards. Let's say if you look at half of it, you see. If you're looking at half of the image, you're seeing 50 feet, not 100. Make sense? Well, that's exactly what the reticle cell is doing. Only the ratio is actually quite a bit smaller. Uh, your objective lens of riflescope sees a lot more than is delivered to your eye. What is delivered to your eye is a small subset of that, right? Depending on where you've dialed your windage and elevation turrets, right? Windage turret will move it left, right? Elevation turret will move it up, down. So that is arguably one of the most difficult mechanical movements, partly because it has to be very precise and very, and very repeatable, partly because it has to survive recoil, okay? And uh, even worse, sometimes it has to survive baggage handlers, which can do things to rifle scope that uh, no, no commercial rifle round will ever try to do. Uh, it's quite impressive that modern high-end rifle scopes are as repeatable as they are. That having been said, no matter how nice a rifle scope, no matter how expensive, no matter how well it is designed for durability and all that sort of stuff, eventually everything can and does fail. Okay, uh, you guys are more outdoorsy than I am. Probably you probably have broken more stuff than I have. Mm -hmm. Those, you'd be you'd be amazed at how much stuff I've broken over the years just by being clumsy and careless. If you really want foolproof or close to foolproof reliability, there's only one way to do so, have a spare. Because shit breaks, that's pretty much it, right? There is a big thing about, uh, not as much now, it used to be one of the big things was that fixed power scopes were inherently more durable than variable power scopes. Yes and no. With the high-end stuff, I do not believe there is any difference anymore. Variable powered scopes are more complicated because not only do you have this windage elevation movement, but there is also additional movement inside the rector system when you change the modification. Hmm. But we've gotten so good in building them that uh, nice stuff is uh, quite robust. So for, for listeners out there, <clears throat> Ilio, is there anything that you can recommend outside of, you know, the, 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 tracking test that people can do uh, what else is there that you can that you can do or is there anything else out there that you can do to identify um an optics ability to uh, function correctly in a mechanical sense so the um uh, 
There is a term called infant mortality for various systems. Vast majority of the problems you will have happen in the beginning of the lifespan of a device and toward the end when it's really worn out. Uh, if you shoot three times a year and your fourth shot is on an elk, you're doing it wrong. Buy your gear, set up your gear, shoot your gear, exercise all the turrets, go through them, um, twist the turrets between the adjustment ranges a few times. Um, if something is obviously wrong, it will fail early on. And then you have, in most cases, a reasonable amount of lifetime before if you do shoot a lot or travel a lot with it nail things down with it. I don't know what else people do. Uh, and then toward the end of the lifespan of the product, it has a really good chance of failing again. But you get the most, the highest chance of reliability after this initial break-in, initial possibility of infant mortality has happened. So that's, that's good. You talk about initial break-in. Mm -hmm. What are some things that shooters could do to, to, when they first purchase a scope that they can do to to get it quote unquote broke in before they even put it on the rifle? Uh, very little. Twist the turrets around a little bit, just mm -hmm. use all the controls, move them around. Uh, if you hit a hard stop, don't force your way through it, right? Don't go baba on it. Ask me how I know. Um, but uh, just move the controls a little bit. Not much is going to break in from a mechanical standpoint, um, but what's going to happen, oftentimes different rifle scopes have grease that's not very well distributed. So you'll move that around. Also, if there is some mechanical shaving, something like that, that's going to come off, it has a good chance of depositing itself on the reticle, so you will see it. You know, take a rifle scope if you see that. Do this a few times. If it doesn't dislodge itself and it bothers you, send it back to the manufacturer. But by and large, you just move all the controls. There's not that much else that you can do, really, mm -hmm. other than just use it. So recoil is going to help you help settle stuff. Uh, most modern rifle scopes don't need all these things, especially nice ones, but it doesn't hurt. And to get some reasonable ex expectation of performance, you have to use your stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I, so I, lived a bit, I, I live in New Mexico now before I moved here. For 28 years, I lived in Los Angeles, right? With a, among a ton of people with more money than sense. Uh, I saw so many people with Accuracy International and Schmidt and Bender at the range shooting from the bench 100 yards only, right? Uh, sometimes with a scope backwards. I kid you not, I've seen that too. Um, doing all sorts of weird things. And if you ask them about the round count, uh, you don't have to be a sniper, right? You guys are all trained to keep your round count, record everything, etc. For most of my guns, I don't record everything. If you ask me, I can give you a ballpark round count, how much this particular gun has been shot and all that. So you talk to these people, and in the five years of ownership, the gun has had less than 100 rounds through it. You don't know how your gun performs. You really don't know how your school performs. Mm -hmm. okay? One of the, you have to set it up. You have to set it up with proper eye relief. That becomes really, really critical. Half the problems I hear about uh, people have is just they didn't set it up in the right place. You have to go shoot it. Twist your and shoot it. So one of the things that I do is a very crude tracking test. I set up a target at uh, whatever distance, pick what you like, fire a shot, move one mil up, fire a shot, move one mil up, fire a shot, 
until I go all the way up to the edge of whatever piece of paper I have, right? Then move back down, fire a shot, move back down, fire a shot. It go up and down a few times until I have, I don't know, five shot group, 10 five shot groups, let's say, right? And it does an interesting thing. It uh, tells you if something is moving up correctly, tells you if something is moving down correctly. You can have hysteresis. You may not have the same thing. If uh, sometimes uh, uh, pressure pads on the turrets have little uh, machine marks on them and you'll notice that you've adjusted up and your group also moved left. All right. Mm. So very not uncommon. Sometimes that will wear in after 50 to 100 shots. Right. The least useful thing is to just go shoot to sight in and shoot a 10 round group and see it's small and call it good. Call it good. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very useful thing from ammo standing, ammo testing standpoint, right? Uh, it's not a very useful thing from a scope testing standpoint. You have to move stuff around. So, what I'm trying to see. I don't care about windage adjustments, right? So I can count on one hand the number of times in my life I've used the windage turret aside from zeroing, mm -hmm. right? Um, I live in New Mexico. It's always freaking windy here. It changes all the time, right? I use the radical to hold for wind. I always get screwed up when I try to dial. I care about elevation turret. So I, I also, I exercise it. And mm -hmm. if you're going to dial in the field, you should exercise wherever you're going to be dialing. If you're going to use the reticle, go and spend some time with the reticle, making sure you're on the same spot in the reticle, right? If you're going to be using the reticle for holdover, uh, shoot at different distances and see if your parallax is the same in the center of the image or as it is, you know, 10 meter radian away. Usually it isn't. It depends on the scope. There's a different sweet spot. That's that's right. it. I'm I'm glad you got into that because there's there's a lot of there's a lot of conversation out there surrounding um, surrounding things like um, reticle collimation. At what distance is your reticle collimated appropriately for the proper measurement? <clears throat> and uh, if you could maybe talk about um, there's a lot of conversations out there circulating the internet on. Uh, Snell's law and what Snell's law does in relationship to oh that's that guy from Colorado who does uh, talks about high altitude shooting and and that you can't use the radical what was his name is that guy uh, I, no. I, I, yeah that's I'm, exactly I'm, that say it again I don't can't remember his name um, say it again it's Ward Ward yeah that Ward Brian. yeah <laughs> uh, I don't know if he's a good shooter he has no idea how optics work his name is so. um. <laughs> You want to this to European directness? Well, here you go. Well, if you're I, friends I, with I, him I, now, you can tell him I, 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 I know care. of him, and I know that there has been a, a lot of really wild claims that come from that um, that uh, that Snell's law and reticle collimation. Um, I'm pretty. I'm I'm really close with uh, with some with some folks that work at Loophold, who have been gracious enough to kind of help out and explain what that is. Um, but I don't believe we've actually covered it in a podcast. So if you, if you could dive into that and talk about reticle collimation and okay. how you can, you know, what that actually means, right? So if you are going to hold, um, where is your reticle collimated at? What is actually a mill at what distance and where are the, uh, what is the percentage of error and all those things? Because obviously that's really important for people to understand. The percentage of error is actually going to be very substantial. Um, an image, well, what's a good way to approach this? Okay. 
Uh, an image created by the objective lens is usually not perfectly flat, right? There is some curvature to it, uh, right? So the perfect focal plane oftentimes has some curvature toward the center of the created image. It's functionally flat, right? So if you're looking at, let's say, dead on in the center or, I don't know, three milliradian away, there's really no difference, okay? As you start getting sufficiently away from the center, that image plane just curves away from you and you're no longer at a zero parallax setting. And how far away from the center it starts curving away from you varies from scope to scope. And you have no freaking clue. Nobody ever puts it in any spec and you don't know, okay? So you have to go and uh, test it out. It works exactly the same way whether you're using the reticle to hold away from the center or if you're dialing, right? So let's say uh, you're using a reticle, uh, something, let's think of something particularly atrocious like a horse reticle of some sort, right? A freaking mosquito net. Uh, I don't like very complicated reticles. Like when you get, you get, there is a, 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 there is a biological reason for it. Uh, so I, I wrote an article for Guns and Emma on reticle design, the things in, the things that are important, not from an optical standpoint, not only from an optical standpoint, but also uh, uh, from a human eye standpoint. I think it was a precision rifle, less precision rifle shooter. One of the really, really important things you want to do, you want to make a reticle that's usable for a tired eye as well as for a fresh eye. When you are fresh and you're just looking through it, everything works great. When you've just spent three hours peering through this thing and your eyes sore and red, it's a very, very different thing, okay? And one of the things that happens, you don't see things away from the center nearly as clearly nearly as well. When what happens is that um, if let's say I'm holding 10 milliradian down and two milliradian left, mm -hmm. right? You're away from the center. When you're fresh, you can aim with that. You're looking through a particular optical path. Uh, some part of the uh, optical path through the objective erector and uh, 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 eyepiece. If you, instead of holding 10 down to left, dial 10 down to left, you have moved the primary aiming point into the same exact optical path as far as the objective lens is concerned. And most of this kind of distortion is coming from the objective lens. What happens now is that you're still looking through some edge of the objective lens, but you're looking through the center of the erector system. Ah, okay. <clears throat> Does it make sense? Because the whole erector moves with the reticle. Right, because the image that the image that's generated by the by the objective lens system is there. It's it's not moving. It's not moving. Yeah, you're just looking at, at at some different portion of it, and as you get close to the edges, you will find more distortions and other things. Mm -hmm. Right. But from a Snell's law, Snell's, uh, Snell's law is just a low refraction, right? When a light goes through an interface between two different materials, it bends at a certain angle, mm -hmm. right? And uh, I've seen, I think it was Ward something or other, I don't remember. Uh, somebody sent me his white paper. I don't remember who it was. I think it was a ballistics guy who asked me to look at it, somebody. Um, and uh, he's talking about when you're at mountains, looking up and down, you're looking through different air, air is refracting different and all sorts of other nonsense. And that's why you need to dial and not hold. I think that was the gist of what he was saying, right? Something to the effect of, um, yeah, yeah. Something yeah. to the effect okay. of, uh, you, you could miss, I think Phil, like the claim was like, you could miss at 500 yards by something of like 36 inches. Yeah, correct. But uh, uh, yeah. 
I can miss by more than that, not a very good shot. Uh, missing is easy. But um, <laughs> from a standpoint of a rifle scope, whether you dial or whether you hold with a reticle, you're looking through the exact same optics and exact same air. So his argument basically does not hold water. He's dealing with some different atmospheric phenomenon that I wasn't there. I don't know what it is. Right? But from a rifle scope standpoint, there's comparatively little difference Unless you have a radical that gives you 20, 30 millimeter region of holdover, and you're looking way at the edges of the director system, you can start picking up weird effects. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so uh, once again, I I came into this not from a shooting background like you guys have, more from general nerdy background, and I shoot very in a very simple way. I, I like holding with a radical, but I almost never hold more than three, four millimeter region away from center. If I need to hold more than that, I start diving. We're you, 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 and the, we're all in the same camp. Yeah. Very right. rarely hold, will I hold more than three or four mils. Exactly. And in practical terms, depending on the cartridge, it means that I'm holding out to between 400 and 600 yards. Right. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, I'm, uh, I'm going to die. Exactly. Uh, and the reason for that is that I don't want to mess with parallax. Remember, I mentioned there's a sweet spot beyond which there is focus roll off. You have to readjust parallax. I don't want to mess with it. I don't, it's different for every scope. So I don't know, unless you really map out how a particular scope performs, you don't know when you need to adjust parallax and when you don't, right? And it's just bringing more trouble on my auditory neck than, than I need. So Ilya, can you explain mm -hmm. reticle collimation? If you are gonna hold, and if you are gonna use your reticle to measure, um, what is the what is the ideal distance for one mil to equal one mil? Does that make so sense? One mil, so no. Uh, well, yes and no. I know what you're getting to, but you're yeah. not saying. Help me correctly. out. Once again, it's, it's, you've already mentioned the bluntness, so it goes in all directions. Uh, keep that in mind. Uh, one mil is always one mil. One mil just means that uh, if an object subtends one mil, it means the size of the object is one thousandth of a distance to the object. Mm -hmm. Right. If you're looking at something a thousand yards, okay, it is a thousand. One millimeter radian is one thousand, so that's one yard. If you're looking at thousand meters, it's going to be one meter. If you look at the thousand inches, it's going to be one inch. It's um, everybody says millimeter radian is metric. It's not. It has nothing to do with metric versus imperial. It just means one thousand. What I'm, I guess, what I'm trying to get at is, okay, so if one mil. Mm -hmm. sub tens if one mil sub tens at um you know three point three point six inches at 100 yards and mm -hmm. you're because your reticle itself the physical reticle has to be collimated correct it has to be so it has to be calibrated collimated means something a little bit different but yes okay uh so it has to be calibrated correct. and it's based upon my understanding mm -hmm. that if if that same one mil is at 600 yards, it will not be the same measurement. Is that It's not going to be the same linear measurement. It's going to be the same, it's going to be one thousandth of a distance. So, so at 600 yards, one mil is going to be 0. 0.6 of a yard. Correct. No, no, I guess. Um, I guess so what I think, so let me throw one other thing at you, maybe that will help, right? If you have a grid reticle, mm -hmm. the reticle subtends one mil radian toward the center. Okay. It's actually going to be one mil radian. Uh, the way the radicals are etched, physical size is the same whether they etch it in the center or toward the edge. If you're looking Got at it. the very edge of the field of view, you may be picking up some distortion in this one mil radian 
is not actually one milliradian that that's it shows. Is that what you're getting to? Yes, that's what I'm getting at. So okay, in, in utilizing the reticle for holds, if if the if the reticle is calibrated at to be exactly one mil at a hundred yards, it will not be exactly one mil at six hundred yards. Is that uh, a correct statement? No, no. It will be exactly okay. one mil at six hundred yards if it's in the center of the image and it's properly calibrated. Okay. What's going to happen is that if you're looking at the edge of the image, and this will vary from scope to scope because there is no rhyme or reason to it. It just depends on specific design. You may have some distortion that distorts the reticle, and it may not necessarily be one milliradian because distortion can come from the objective or from the erector, and you don't know where it's coming from. Okay. okay? So one milliradian is an angular unit. Angles don't depend on distance. 100 mm -hmm. yards, 600 yards, 500 yards. 10,000 yards. Doesn't matter. An angle is an angle. Now, the angle will subtend something larger if you're further away from you, right? The physical linear size of an object will be larger. But the milliradian is milliradian. The problem is with reticle calibration, right? When you get your uh, eye behind the scope and you move a little bit, you see little stuff swimming on the periphery. Mm -hmm. Everything is getting distorted. Is that reticle feature subtending one milliradian at the edge of your field of view? Sometimes yes, and sometimes no. Understood. Okay. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. Thanks for clearing that up. Yeah. A good analogy is the way human eye works, right? A human eye has really, really wide field of view, but through most of it, we are not really seeing where sensing. And here is the difference, right? The way a human retina is designed, there's an area called the fovea that has the highest concentration of uh, light sensitive cells. When we're looking at something with great resolution, great precision, we are only getting that information from comparatively narrow field of view in front of you. The eye is still seeing stuff that's wider than that, but it's mostly trying to detect things, detect movement or something, unusual contrast change. And if you're trying to get a better look, you will turn or your eye will turn, right? And you should, we should think of a rifle scope since that is an optical system in a somewhat similar way. If you want to get a lot of detail, a lot of information, it should be in some central portion, some sweet spot of an image. The stuff at the edges is for you to be aware of, kind of know it's there, kind of know something there is happening, but not to do anything quantitative out of. Is it making sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. You see something in there that you want to look at, turn and look at it uh, with the center of an optic or somewhere near the center. And once again, this is the problem. Where the sweet spot is for any given optic will vary substantially depending on which optic it is. Some riflescopes have very large flat sweet spot. Some don't. And there's even sample variation. So uh, real quick, I want to I want to define a couple things that uh, mm -hmm. for me um, to help better explain when it uh, term it, when it comes to optic or I guess glass quality as a lot of shooters like to call it, and I know it, this is probably one of the last things that I focus on um, in terms of purchasing optic, which we'll get into, but things like uh, defining chromatic aberration, edge edge clarity, resolution, contrast, right? I think there's a, a big misunderstanding of what, um, what they're looking for. Cause you know, you guys, you have guys that at shot show go to optics booth, look up, it's like, Oh, that glass looks great <laughs> inside of, inside of, you know, a Las Vegas building shooting, you know, looking at something at the ceiling at 25 yards away, but really what are they, what should they be looking for when they're 
I guess, comparing, let's say, doing a glass comparison between an optic and an optic in terms of glass quality? Uh, fundamentally, everybody, most people are making it too complicated. Uh, find something that looks better to you under unpleasant lighting conditions. That's sort of what it boils down. The most stuff looks pretty good during the day, although there are some differences. Uh, let's define a couple of things. Um, resolution. How well can you see something fairly small? Contrast. How much does that something small stand out? Meaning, if you look at the black-white contrast, right, it may look like dark gray to light gray, but you can still see it, right? So that's a highly resolved image, but it's not a very contrasty image. Our eyes like contrast. If you go to low light, contrast becomes more important than resolution, right? Uh, you want true or well-controlled colors. Chromatic aberration is this color fringes on the interface between light and dark. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, you don't want those too much, partly because they are also a symptom of other problems. Chromatic aberration by itself is not that big a deal, but it, but it's a symptom of uh, color not managed particularly well. The way we see things, the way our eyes work, we're highly dependent on color perception to make sense of things. Right. So color is important. And one of the things that separates uh, the really nice stuff from the stuff that's not quite as nice is how much color vision can you carry into low light situations, right? When the light gets really, really dark, your eye switches to this, uh, uh, to a night mode where you lose color perception. It's all black and white. And the resolution and the ability to see stuff uh, drops dramatically. If the scope has very vivid colors and nice contrast, you will retain color vision into lower light levels than you would mm. with something that just gives you uh, just gives you resolution. Okay. Yeah. You want to think about field of view, you know, that we've talked a little bit about before. Wider field of view gives you somewhat better awareness. A lot of uh, our vision is based on shape recognition. Our eye and brain recognize different shapes. That actually helps you see. Unfortunately, it also means we see a bunch of shit that's not there. That's a separate problem. Um, but wide field of view generally helps. What really helps is depth of field, right? How if your uh, optic is focused on some uh, distance, how far in front and behind it can you see when it's sharp, right? For PRS, when you talk about guys who are running tangents and Z-comps, right, who set their parallax to, I don't know, 300 yards and never touch it through the whole competition because there's enough depth of field to see a bunch of stuff. Excellent. Okay. So I would like to talk about that because there are some, there's a lot of scopes out there that have massively different perceptions mm -hmm. of parallax adjustment, depth of field. Um, as an example, um, you know, uh, coloscopes, the coloscopes that I shoot, uh, very sensitive to parallax, right? Yes. So if I've got parallax set for 500 yards and I start shooting at a target that's at 300 yards, I can very distinctly see uh, um, an out of focus image. Mm -hmm. Whereas like a scope, like a loophole, as an example, I can Mark set five, that parallax setting. Correct. Yeah. So Mark five, um, mm -hmm. I can set that parallax setting at 500 yards or whatever parallax free is at 500 yards. Mm -hmm. And I can shoot at a 300 yard target. And it's very, very difficult to tell if there's any uh, focal um, mm -hmm. abnormalities, right? If it's that right. the image is out of focus or in focus. Mm -hmm. 
So there are different uh, schools of thought in uh, this kind of design. For example, some of the March scopes that I like, they have also comparatively shallow depth of field, although they have a new one designed for me that's deeper. Um, for target shooting, shallow depth of field is actually not a bad thing to have because it allows you to dial in perfect focus because it's because it's shallow, you clearly know what's out of focus, what's not out of focus. Right. Well, the rifle scope, mm -hmm, go ahead. Well, that's the thing that that with uh, with loophole scopes that I found that it was just like really difficult to detect whether or not I was I was truly parallax free because of the focus. Uh, correct. That makes sense. It, yes. No, that's exactly what it is, right? But here's a catch: um, if you're reasonably in focus and you have a consistent shooting position, there is some parallax. That's not that much. Exactly. It's definitely yes. not enough to ruin your minute of plate shooting. Yep. But if you're trying to shoot the tightest groups, you need that perfect focus. Okay. I I would like to come back to that. So yeah. if we don't, Philip, please remind me to, because I would love to come back to that. It's a big deal. So these depth of field business, uh, your eye uses the depth to really construct an image of the scene. We all, when we talk about an image, we always think of a photographic two-dimensional thing, right? That's not how your eye works. Your eye sees an image in three dimensions, left, right, up, down, front, back. This is how your brain is used to processing things. By a rifle scope with a lot of depth of field, and I always bring tangent data into this conversation because I think they have the most depth of field of what's out there right now. Uh, so I, I shoot tangents and marches and a bunch of other things. I get a chance to play with everything. There was an interesting thing. So uh, uh, Phil, so you've, you talked to Will. Will and I, back when I still lived in LA, we put, I have a tripod fixture. I can put six scopes on it. And we were looking at stuff at the, at the range. Uh, 100, 200, I think that range goes to 600 something yards and it was hot. And as it, as the day warmed up, it was between the nice scopes during the day. I mean, you see there are differences, but a lot of it is stylistic, slightly different color, whatever, right? As we started looking at 600 and past it, of all the scopes out there, they all held up well and tangent was better than others. You get this perception, you're looking, you're seeing better through the mirage. Mirage is mirage. Mirage is the same for all scopes. Mm -hmm. But because you get more of this three-dimensional picture, your brain is better able uh, to figure out where things are. Mm. Okay. 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 So that's why when people, when people say, oh, it cuts through mirage better, it's because it has a better depth of field. It doesn't cut through mirage better. It just gives your brain more information to make sense of stuff. Okay. You can, ah, yeah. Yep. That, so, that, Phil, that this ties sense. this ties back into Owen's conversation. Yeah, it does. Uh, it does. Yeah. Perfect. It's awesome. So, um, so the depth of field is really critical, and uh, now with so many scopes being very nice, depth of field ends up one of the differentiators, right? Um, Ilya, is it is it a good time to talk about um, the effects of lighting on? on your images. Um, as an example, my, my range here that I live in, in uh, central Washington mm -hmm. and my range faces directly West. So I have tremendous lighting changes from morning to afternoon mm -hmm. and I can, I can detect, um, I can detect, detect zero changes from um, morning lighting on the target to evening lighting on the target. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that? Can you, is there any way to explain that? So I have seen that a little bit. I've never given it much thought because to me, it just looks like it's a refraction through the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Same like with the mirage. When you're looking through a mirage, what you're looking at is not necessarily where the bullet's going to go, mm -hmm. right? Because air at different temperatures and with different turbulence will refract light differently. Okay. And that's essentially what it is best I can tell. 
if you ask me to quantify it, I can't easily do it off the top of my head. I've noticed the effect. I've never given it a ton of thought. And I suspect it's not easy to quantify since it will change dramatically it's through the day. Tough. It's tough. Yeah. Um, I notice, I notice, and Phil's noticed the same thing out here. He shot out at, at my range as well. Yeah. And I've noticed anywhere from like a 10th to two tenths difference in zero. If I print a zero group yeah. early, early in the morning with the sun directly behind uh -huh. me and low, um, and then I print the same group, um, or the same, or I shoot another group in the evening time, or even when light is at like directly above, yeah, I'm, you know, one it or two tenths. So it will be a little different now. So now you're getting to the point where I'm a little bit weak, right? I always point out I'm a pretty decent engineer. I'm not a particularly good shot. I'll take some of your questions <laughs> probably. Uh, there are certain things there that I see, I've seen the effect. I kind of have an idea how it works, but in terms of practical feel, of how to interpret me perceiving the conditions into a change in shooting, this is where I'm weak. Sure, okay. that's fair, that's fair enough. Uh, but uh, aside from the atmosphere, there's one other thing to keep in mind. Um, if there's significant, uh, if there's significant difference in, uh, in light levels, there is gonna be a difference in the dilation of your eye pupil. And that will change the focus and the parallax performance of your, of your eye. Okay. okay. You can also be picking up different parallax performance because your eye is doing something different. Right. Interesting. This so I mean, if, is a perfect, perfect time to roll into the effects of parallax is like this is yeah. really important. Uh, correct. Um, what parallax is is something in the optical system is not aligned in the XY axis, not perfectly superimposed. And if you are able to move your eye behind the scope with the next pupil you can have uh, effective shift in point of aim, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, due to this effect. And, and this, all the three different optical systems in the rifle scope, they all kind of have to work together. So they, uh, they don't always know where it's coming from. For example, you can set up your parallax perfectly and then light changes, your eye pupil dilated, and now your eyepiece is no longer set correctly for you. And you will start picking up parallax, right? Because eyepiece focus and parallax are not completely decoupled from each other. Yes, yes. So one of the things, for example, I tell people to do, and it's more important with front focal plane scopes than second focal plane. Uh, if you're setting up the eyepiece for your eye, do it during the day and then do it during the dusk when the eye is somewhat dilated. The dusk setting will work during the day. The day setting may not necessarily work during dusk. Uh, Interesting. I've never done. I've never heard that before. Um, uh, when your eye pupil dilates, it changes the depth of field that's native to your eye, and it also makes your visual acuity worse. So you're yeah. saying adjust the diopter for the evening, low light. Yeah, and it's possible. So as you get older, you may actually end up with two different diopter settings. You might have to mark them. Um, I'm getting there. If uh, you don't mind me asking, how old, how old are you? Uh, I'll be, I'm, I'm about to be 42. Okay. So I'm 45. I'm three years ahead of you. You're getting there. Yeah. No, I, how I it's know. been, it's been, it's been re re uh, readily apparent in the last probably two years. Yeah, sure. that's about right. So yeah. uh, I'm very nearsighted. I wear contacts, but with contacts, I have unusually good vision. And uh, when I write around that turn 40, I started really seeing the difference. Parallax in its purest form is when the rifle is perfectly steady, you move your eye behind it, and uh, where the reticle is pointing is shifting. 
In practical terms, for people who are not very experienced with shooting, it becomes a very, very difficult thing uh, to check because not, people don't have vices. And if you, even if you're on bags, holding the rifle steady enough where you can move your eye behind it and not budge the rifle is actually quite tricky. Okay. Um, a, in a well-designed rifle scope, you can, if your eyepiece is set up correctly, I've got a couple of videos on that actually. So I never thought that eyepiece setup was that complicated, but apparently it is. And I'll go over that momentarily. Um, if your eyepiece set up correctly and you use the, your parallax knob or adjustable objective, whatever adjustment your scope has, to bring the image into sharp focus, parallax is sufficiently well controlled to shoot plates, even small plates far away. Okay. If you are shooting for the smallest group, uh, you need to spend more time making sure there is no real parallax. Okay. But for normal people shooting normal size targets, I sort of advocate to get the image sharpened and focus get your scope set up correctly. And you are either perfect or close enough to perfect where you can just go and shoot. Okay. I've seen people go to the range for four hours, spend three and a half trying to dial out parallax half hour shooting. Not a good use of your time. <laughs> okay. uh, while I'm on it, so uh, eyepiece setting. The eyepiece is there for one thing and one thing only to make sure that you are seeing the reticle in as sharp of a way as possible. So the traditional way of doing it is you point at the sky or at a wall, just something without any features, and you uh, adjust your eyepiece, frequently turning away until the reticle is as sharp as possible. And that generally works well enough. But there is a little bit of a problem with front focal plane reticles because when you go on high magnification, the reticle gets bigger together with the image. And now it's so visible, it's very, very hard to find the sweet spot. Mm. Okay. So where what you want to do, you want to go on high magnification, look at something with featureless, uh, make sure your eye is adjusted at, at looking far away, remember that relaxed state of your eye, glass through the scope, adjust it until the reticle looks perfectly sharp. That's step one. Step two, you dial the magnification down to the, slow, the lowest magnification where you can still see the reticle clearly enough and repeat this exercise. Okay, You want to be looking at small features because there, if you're slightly out of focus, you will see it immediately. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at the <laughs> reticle that's very large and bold, even if it's not perfectly focused, the way your brain processes the image, it'll still look perfectly sharp. With some, there's a little bit of a detour. Now, once again, I do detours all the time, so stop me when, it's, uh, when you think it's useless. The way we see things is not as much about the eyes as it is about the brain. You know, from a standpoint of a camera, uh, right, we, our visual cortex works so well that all these smart machine vision cameras and all that that we make, we gave up essentially on trying to replicate what a human eye does and we just gone off in a different direction that we can do with computerized systems. We have no freaking clue how our brain processes images. A lot of people who claim they have a clue that's an education, they have no clue. Um, the eye as a camera is not that great. The DSP, the signal processing your brain does is remarkable. 
you can make a real argument that what uh, evolution-wise, what made us human is the development of visual cortex the way it did, because it does amazing things. I can even make another argument that uh, we developed the way we did because of the necessity of aiming. We're fundamentally aiming animals. The ability to take a rock, aim and throw it, put such a burden on the human uh, brain that we developed this huge, enormously complicated visual cortex in your frontal lobes, okay? Because of that, when you see something that's not perfectly sharp, your brain will make it, will, will perceive it as sharp because if it's big enough, it's sharp enough, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're trying to focus on something, you want to give your brain something fairly challenging to look at and make that perfectly sharp. Is that okay. making sense? Yep. Yep. Okay. And uh, to go back on uh, the eye pupil dilation, um, there's a significant difference in how we see in the dark and in the light. So make sure you check your reticle focus at dusk. So what that means is that not when it's pitch black and you have lost color vision. You want lighting conditions where you could still see color, but it's comparatively low light. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yep, sure does. If your eyepiece is set up correctly, you, you should be in a operating in a mode where by making the image look sharp using sight focus or adjustable objective, you're sufficiently parallax free to for almost anything other than bench chest space. It kind of makes you want to switch up the curriculum, not switch up the curriculum or curriculum, but our day one have almost like a focus on rifle scope setup, right? So like zero first thing in the morning and then like at the evening time, have them recheck their zero. You know what I'm saying, Kalen? Just yeah. to, you know, at the end of the day, they're tired, right? They've been they've been looking through an optic all day, and mm -hmm. it's like, all right, you know, it's a, as a necessary evil. You know, we have to make sure that your scope is still set for the best conditions for you. Mm -hmm. You know, first thing in the morning when you're you know ready to go, and then after you've been shooting all day. Yeah. And it'll make more difference for a 50 year old than a 20 year old. Right? It will also yeah, be for individual. Sure. For some people, it's going to be all about the same. For some people, there's going to be a significant difference. For some scopes, it's going to be close. For some scopes, it's going to be a difference. The idea is that every shooter has to be set up the right way for his eye and his gear. Right? There is a lot of, unfortunately, there's a lot of, I can give you guidelines, but I can't give you recipes. Sure. Yep. So, Philip, you, you mentioned while well, Ilya was on his break that you wanted to address some some points what were those points yeah so Ilya, so you know um what i want to ask you about for guys that are listening you know typically uh, a lot of our audience as well are, are people that maybe are looking to get into long range you know they they uh, understand kind of the lifestyle of long range shooting whether they want to be you know pursue competition shooting whatever but it all starts with obviously the rifle setup um, and then, you know, the most intimidating part is like the optic. And then, like you said, there's so much brand loyalty out there when a, when a person uh, uh, throws up a question on, um, you know, uh, a forum, right? You immediately can tell who the brand ambassadors are for specific optic yep. companies. <laughs> yeah. And, the, and, the, and then they come to me and I have to explain stuff. I, so I get these kind of questions. Uh, I started doing my website uh, and I even put up a small paywall to separate people who are just wasting my time from those who really want it. 
yeah. because I'm at the point where I can't answer every question anymore. Yeah, they come in from all directions. Um, uh, so you want to go through the decision process of how to yeah. purchase uh, precision P- purchase? Yeah, what what and then and then almost kind of what you as a as someone that's testing and, and very like hard on optics, what how you're grading an optic. Uh, in terms of its performance, like what's, what, what matters to you? Cause like you said, you, you, uh, you, you tend to uh, favor the, you're there for the consumer, not necessarily the, okay. the product. So first thing, uh, first thing, figure out your budget, figure out what your upper limit is. And if you could get something for less than that, that's great. Don't start out. Well, the best I could do is 500 bucks. And before you're done, you just spend three grand. Don't do that. If you could spend three grand, start looking there. Otherwise, you're wasting your time and everybody else's. Okay. That's that's probably the biggest thing. Uh, rifle scope fundamentally is an aiming device. First thing it has to do is hold zero. If it doesn't hold zero, it doesn't matter how nice it is. Okay, take it from an optics guy. Optics are less important than holding zero. So, so holding zero meaning like if it if it takes a hard impact if you if you dial the turret and you come back and, uh, it... no first first thing first thing before you dial anything before you hit it you sight it in and has to hold zero under recoil okay really really hold zero under recoil not shift very little not shift at all not shift in a way that's perceptible this is basically this is we start out with what's sufficient for hunters this is sufficient for hunters unless you're doing you know, very long range okay that's the bare minimum and then for precision you start going you start going uh from there okay the optics need to be good enough uh if you know how you're going to shoot primarily hole primarily dialogue combination of both that will drive your perception of uh what features you need but first it has to hold zero second it has to return to zero after dialing Return to zero does not mean track correctly. If the scope clicks are not 0.1 mil radian, I can make it work. As long as it's that not 0.1, as long as it's that you know, 0.09 or whatever, it is consistently every time, right? If I dial 10 clicks and it didn't take me 1 mil radian off, it took me 0.9 mil radian off, as long as it does it consistently, the scope is perfectly usable. It's not ideal, but if you're on a budget, as long as it is consistent, and always come back to, comes back to zero, you can use it, okay? What you cannot tolerate is inconsistency, right? If I dial 10 clicks and it's 0.9 every time, you know, I wouldn't tolerate the $3,000 scope, right? But if I'm spending 600 bucks and that's what it does and I can't spend more, I will live with that. It has to be consistent and repeatable in terms of adjustments, and in terms of coming back to zero. Then we come to optics. You can't hit what you can't see. But it's better to not see than see one thing and a bullet going in some other direction. What is optics in this case? Um, One of the terms I dislike the most is what people call optical clarity. Optical clarity has a specific definition, and it's completely meaningless for a rifle scope. Uh, Usually, it just means that they see well. Right. Um, you want to see contrast, color, resolution. 
look at, there are two things to look at. What everybody does is try to simulate something like look at the resolution chart, print something out, set it up a hundred yards, go look at the black lines. And that's nice, it's not nearly enough. You want to do that, you want to basically see if it gives you enough detail and then find something to look that does not have a lot of features, has small color variations. If you guys are in the Northeast, right, you've got all sorts of green vegetation over there. Go look at the freaking tree, bunch of different trees. Can you figure out where the leaves are? Can you, can you look at these small tonal variations and see where things are? That is arguably one of the most challenging things for optical systems. That's where you're paying the money for optics, small tonal and feature variations. But all of these small things, something, sometimes you can say micro contrast, all these small things really feed into your brain's ability to do things and will also long-term cut down on fatigue. Okay? Once you've... Uh, figured out that optically it's good enough for what you want to do, right? If you have a PRS type setup somewhere, go look at some small targets hidden behind vegetation or rocks somewhere that are not painted white. Can you see them, right? It's the same basic thing. Uh, uh, so I live in New Mexico. It's, uh, there's not a ton of green here. Well, there's some near the river, but I that. So I have a lot of yellows and browns and have a beigeish colors. Go and look at stuff. Are you seeing things that don't stand out, right? Uh, this kind of stuff is important. Once you get the optics that are good enough for you, then we come to how accurate the tracking is. Remember, we've talked about how reliable the tracking is, meaning consistent. Now we're getting to the point how accurate is it. Uh, in my opinion, people put a little bit too much focus on point one always being point one. Mechanical perfection is hard on the budget, right? If I'm looking at a Mark V or a Carlos, which you guys use, or a Tangent or a March, a Z-Comp, any of those, that point one click better be point one click. That's fine. Yeah, if I'm spending, this is what, this is this Arkan thing, uh, spending 600 bucks on this. I mean, this one actually tracks pretty well and they make a big deal out of it and all that sort of stuff. But fundamentally for 600 bucks, I can tolerate less precision as long as it's consistent. You with me? Yep, yep. That's, that's fair to say. That's yeah. super that, fair. That is sort of it in a nutshell. And then you get to the point, how well does it survive transportation and all that sort of stuff. The right. problem with transportation, you can't quantify it, right? A ton of things will shift zero from a side impact, side impact, right? So here's a mount, a rear ring, front ring. If you knock it here fairly hard, the whole objective thing will actually bend slightly. It may or may not come back to its original position. Okay? Okay. You want the scope to be more tolerant of that, put the front ring further forward, right behind the objective mount. Less, less of a lever, but you cannot easily quantify it. You know, you see this thing, oh, my rifle fell out of my stand, dropped on six rocks, uh, you know, got to the grizzly in the process and still held, held zero, right? It's luck of the draw. You do it 10 times and it'll be fine five and it'll be all over the place the other five. Okay. Most people, me included, I have no real statistical data on the score. I, I look at a sample of one, sometimes two. I don't have the statistics to tell you anything about reliability. What I do is that if something I have, so lists of the stuff I recommend, if something goes in my list of recommendations, people buy it from my recommendation, I stay in touch with them and I try to get some 
an amount of anecdotal evidence. Anecdotal evidence is still evidence to give me an idea of how a particular scope holds up. And if I find that it does not hold up, I will get all this off of my list of recommendations. But I do not have the ability to test statistically a significant number of scopes. Okay. With some manufacturers, I do know their return rates, how much goes back uh, to uh, customer service and all that sort of stuff. Uh, eight out of 10 is customer error of some sort because people by and large can tell the ass from an elbow. Uh, and the other 20% are the ones who listen to your podcast and they actually learn over time, right? Uh, eight out of 10, you know, will take it to the range twice and never do anything with it. Uh, with impact, various impact to the objective lens is what usually gives you small errors that are not easily detectable. If you if if something fails, you want it to fail catastrophically. Once again, one exception to this maybe combat where it's, you you'd prefer it bent but still usable, right? Uh, for the civilian world, if it falls down, you and it's damaged, you want the eyepiece to be completely fallen off, so you know exactly it's screwed up. Right. right. <laughs> what you don't want is this halfway thing where you don't know if it's damaged or not, because you may not have an easy way to figure out exactly where you are. Unfortunately, most minor impacts, mishandling, and stuff like that are in that gray area where you don't know for sure what's happening. And that comes back to my original recommendation, use your gear, right? I always joke, you know, I, so I test a lot of stuff, right? But that's a funny thing. You know, I have, I don't know, 50, 80 rifles. I don't know how many rifles I have. I really shoot three of them. I pull out the rest of them because I'm a general purpose gun nut and I like shooting different stuff and old guns. And I collect old most in the guns and I do shoot them occasionally. I don't practice with them. Right? I have a 22, a bolt gun, and an AR that I do a lot of practice with. With ammo shortage, I may switch to an AK instead of an AR. Ilya, what's um, your mm -hmm. thoughts on having um, long objective bell housings and in terms of like field use? I know you said that like uh, impacts to the bell to the objective bell housing are are more influential, um, along with side impacts. So, mm -hmm. would would somebody that would potentially be utilizing their rifle for more of a field use application be better off with going with a shorter scope that has um, less ability for um, the objective lens to to have you know a, a lever arm. It really depends on how much money you want to spend. Okay. Because shorter rifle scopes to have everything else uh, work well, shorter rifle scopes are harder to build. Mm -hmm. I have a good example here. Hold on, man. Oh, no, I have one. A Schmidt 5 to 20 Ultra Short. Mm -hmm. There are better scopes in the magnification, it's all bigger. Right? This stuff is hard to build. A uh, longer scope is somewhat more susceptible to impact and getting beaten up. But if for the same price, if you're somewhere on the budget, meaning no, if you're not in the price, no object world, you will be compromising something else. And it's not just uh, optical performance. So that's a good way of explaining this. If you have a shorter rifle scope, usually that means you have a shorter objective lens system, right? Yeah. Uh, in it's harder to optimize a short objective lens system, and oftentimes you will have shallow depth of field because of that. Longer focal length systems, greater depth of field, shorter 
for a shorter depth of field. So that's one downside right there. It can be mitigated to some degree with a better optical design that costs money. But if you have a shorter focal length of an objective lens system, it, it uh, avalanches through the rest. It makes everything else more difficult. Now, what that means is that this point one in the radian click, when you're dealing with shorter optics, is a smaller physical movement of the turret up and down, right? Instead of mm. 30 microns, now it's 15 microns, and you're still expecting the same precision, right? So if the manufacturing tolerance is one micron, and you, instead of making a 30 micron step, you're making a 15 micron step, right? Your chance of no, your adjustment not being perfect is now higher. Okay. Okay, right? From a durability standpoint, from the way the scopes are mounted, shorter optics are easier to make robust, but they're harder to make good in every other way. Okay. And the compromise is somewhere in between, right? Um, let me grab another sculpture to show you. I asked that because of the way that that like uh, that five to 25 on my seven Psalm is super long, right? It, it, like from the front ring is, you know, there's, there's a lot of length there. On the uh, Leopold Mark five, five to 25? No, no yeah. on, the, on the Collis. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Collis actually did something weird where there's a lot of length in objective lens and depth of field is still shallow. So in the general of a, a general disclaimer, if my body is ever found, like I said, in the ditch somewhere, Collis is in the top three. Uh, <laughs> they don't take criticism well. So here is a tangent, five to 25 by 56. Mm -hmm. Here's the Schmidt Ultra Short 5 to 20. Can you see it well enough? Yep. yep. Look at the difference in objective lens length oh, yeah. right, from the turrets onward. Huge difference. This is a clearly superior scope optically, and it should be. It's expensive, etc. Uh, to make this robust, they had to do some things inside. You, this is, there is a reason why this weighs, you know, 46 ounces, something. I don't know. It's heavy. Yeah. Right. Uh, but there is no real, there is no free lunch. Something's got to give, and you've got to figure out what's more important to you, right? Uh, the more money you spend, the fewer compromises you're going to make, right? This is optically not as nice as, as the tangent, but it's still very, very nice, and it's short. But uh, are you familiar with the EOTech Voodoo 5 to 25 by 50? The really, really short scope. No. I've heard of that. I haven't actually had my hands on it. It's it's a surprisingly nice scope for the money. Uh, but, you know, put it next to the Schmidt Ultra Short. It's not the same. It doesn't cost the same, right? Mm -hmm. But that's the challenge. It's, uh, it's a 5 to 25 by 50. Uh, optics really start to suffer above 20 power. But as a 5 to 20, it's really excellent. If it had better reticles, I'd own one. Because I think I like short scopes, easier to put a clip on in front of it. And I'm willing to accept some compromises. Nice mm -hmm. design mechanically. Uh, but you get what you pay for. If you want the best optics in a short design, which means you can't. Right? And that will cost you. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's, it's a sort of a long-winded way to answer a question. But, no, it's good because you're absolutely right, man. There's no free lunch. You're always going to have give and take. You're always going to have pros and cons. And you're always going to be having to make that balance, that balanced choice. And that's, that's really what this podcast episode is all about is, mm -hmm. is helping you helping other people identify points to uh, give them 
uh, more education when they select an optic. But that's one of the reasons I said uh, didn't start with figuring out what your budget is, mm-hmm. and make sure you uh, and make sure you also uh, count the cost of amount, right? And I also as always have some very unpopular and controversial opinions on mounts, uh, but that's um, it'll cost you a decent amount's going to cost you money. Mm-hmm. So. All right, Ilya, yeah. this is going to be a question. I, I know you probably won't have a. Uh problem answering it's a question that probably a lot of the guys that are listening are kind of want to have but um i've got four budgets here um mm-hmm. ranges um and what i oh would boy. like to hear is your i would say uh top three in each category oh boy so i've got a shooter uh, that has so, a, uh application precision shooting what are we talking about uh let's let's talk precision like they want to maybe compete and and maybe get into long range hunting PRS and RL longer. Yeah, P- PRS or, or hunting. Got so $500. Get a second job. <laughs> uh, no, not necessarily. Um, once again, there are conflicting opinions because you can get some stuff that's close. Uh, me personally, uh, So this, this is kind of early. So this Arkan SH4 is actually a contender, but I haven't had it long enough to be able to comfortably recommend it. If you want to talk about stuff that I'm really confident of, 300 bucks says WFA 10 by footage show. This is a site focus model. It's old. It's not glamorous. It tracks, it works. I mean, 10 power is a little too much for hunting, not quite enough for competition. You can do it in a pinch. Um, and 300 bucks leaves you money for a decent mount. Stuff. We're talking about scope, only scope with mount. Yeah, just only scope, yeah. yeah. Just only scope. Yeah. So this yeah. is kind of promising. Uh, another inexpensive scope I've been looking at is uh, this is a Vortex uh, Venom 5 to 25, 556. A little bit bigger than I like for hunting, but it's surprisingly decent in it. I have a little, I have a little bit more mileage uh, with it than with the Arkan. And uh, so far, so good. The weakness of this design is uh, uh, it does not, well, Arkan doesn't either, I think. It does not have illumination for hunting and low power. With front focal plane scopes, you really want illumination. But one thing I will say, and I will get a flag for that, if your purpose is long range, among other things, long range hunting and precision shooting, front focal plane reticle. Don't do second focal plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people screw this up because in uh, on slightly under stress, they decide to use a reticle for wind holes and they're not perfectly on the right magnification. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I watched it's, a friend... I watched a friend in, in Africa miss a giant, giant Gems buck as a result of that. I, I see this all the freaking time. And here's the thing, right? Under if when, I'm, I'm a new, sort of a numerically inclined guy, may have come through. Uh, I can do all the arithmetic in my head if I need to. Here is a problem. Not when I'm under stress. And on top of it, uh, in significant number of rifle scopes, the way the magnification 
magnification ring is marked is more of a guideline. What it says, some intermediate magnification doesn't, if it says 6x, it's not necessarily 6x. Evan took some fancy scopes and mapped out the field of views of functional magnification. It's not linear. They engrave them in whichever bass accurate way they engrave them. And on top of it, if your eyepiece is not set up perfectly, the apparent magnification is also different. So if you're going to use a second focal plane scope, you actually have to map it out at every magnification to figure out what all that stuff means. Mm -hmm. Or dial both magnification, uh, both elevation and windage. That mm -hmm. works. But I'm ideologically opposed to dialing windage. I think it's just a bad idea. Right? And once again, I'm not an authority on shooting, but from everything I've done, I just don't like it. It's uh, wind shifts on you, and now you have to get off the rifle, figure out where that turret is, and it's just a pain in the ass. Yep. What's, right, your, so next, what's thousand, your next budget, Phil? $1,000 budget. Okay. $1,000 budget, they actually have a lot of good options. Um, uh, Vortex Viper PST Gen 2, 3 to 15 by 44. Um, in every uh, scope product line, there are, uh, let's say PST Gen 2 has several different scopes on it. They're not all equal. They're all mechanically very similar. Optically, some optical systems just work better than others. Uh, with, the, with PST Gen 2, 3 to 15 by 44, sort of the jam of the lineup. And once you start talking about long-range hunting and precision, people tend to use too much magnification. Anything with 15 pound at top end is more or less enough in a pinch. Is it nicer to have a little more available? Occasionally, yeah. Is it required? I'd say no, but you know, opinion is different. So that's a nice scope. If you want something larger, uh, Miopta Optica 6, 5 to 30 by uh, 56, more of a proper long-range scope. Uh, I'm somewhat biased because I designed the reticle for it, um, but um, I, the, the three reticle, but the reticle actually works. And that's just under a grand, I think. Uh, let's see what else is worthwhile over there. Um, Element Titan, 5 to 25 by 56, it's a very respectable scope. Element Optics is sort of a newish company that are doing some uh, nice things. But the number one choice for $1,000 is uh, Brownells MPO 3218 by 50. Really? Yep. It's the, it's the only one of this whole thing that's uh, that's made in Japan. It's nicely robust. Um, the reticle is not for everyone, but it works. What was the name of that scope again, Ilya? Uh, Brownells made their house brand of optics called MPO. Yeah, it's a, they have two models, 3 to 18 by 50 and 5 to 25 by 56. They're both quite respectable. 3 to 18 is really nice. 9.99. Interesting. I'm going to have to look that one up. And it's a very feature-rich scope for a grand, and it actually works. Awesome. Okay. All right. This is where uh, some people start. Before we get to the next thing, so as a general okay. rule, I... I if I have to choose one general purpose scope, I always lean toward magnification ranges like 3 to 15, 3 to 18, something like that. Yeah. Um, that general range. Some I'm okay with lower low end magnification being five or lower. Um, but if I can get uh, something that goes down to three, it's usually an advantage. But that may or may not be that case for everyone. Um, a few years ago, I figured out how much I suck shooting offhand. So I spent a lot of time shooting offhand. Interestingly, it had an overall positive effect the rest of my shooting, right? Uh, somehow carried over. Uh, uh, if you're shooting offhand, uh, the less magnification you have, the less tremor you see, and three really helps me with that. You know, I've 
spent a lot of time trying to figure out at what modification I should be shooting offhand. And I can do it adequately on five, but I'm not happy doing it. Uh, so I like 3215, 3218, and you'll see this sort of list of recommendations where possible. Yeah. Right, what's your next pricing, uh, price range? 2000. See, so you skipped over the 1500 that I like. Uh, all right, so under 2000. So the what I believe to be the best compromise scope for everything on the market right now under 2000 is Vortex's new Razor HDLHT. Uh, four and a half to twenty-two by fifty. Is that is that a Gen three? Um, no, it's uh, so Gen three is, is not out yet. Oh, the Gen uh, two. So it's not. It's neither. So Vortex has a Razer Gen two as sort of their tactical uh, precision yep. scopes. Yep. And HD LHT, LHT stands for Light Hunter Tactical. Okay. And so that they're lightish weight scopes that kind of crossover designs. Uh, and uh, the first two they had were three to fifteen, and their second focal plane. And uh, earlier this year, they released um, two months ago. They released this four point five to twenty two by fifty. Uh, I actually so let me put it this way: I got one to play with in February. I went to sh shot shot a sheep with it in April. Uh, really enjoyed that. Uh, that was the, I think the first kill done with that scope. I liked it enough where I actually ordered another one, and I'm actually gonna, I'm actually paying for the other one. Okay, there is no, I can't come up with a better recommendation. It's uh, the big thing about this one is it's lightweight. It's uh, it's about 21 ounces, 21 and a half. Wow. Front focal plane with reasonable magnification range. Um, I saw a guy shooting it uh, at uh, NRL Hunter, right? So yeah, I've spent a lot of time with it. That's what sort of sits on my general purpose bolt gun. Is it as nice as the high-end stuff? No. It's optical. It's about as good as anything you'll find under two grand. It's lightweight, front focal plane, and it tracks. And perfectly reasonable, normal tree radical, nothing extravagant. Just a really nice general purpose design. For pure competition, you can, you know, you don't where you don't need to save weight as much. There are other options that will do more for you. Right. Uh, to keep the weight light, the field of view is average, not awesome. The elevation turret is six millimeter radian per turret, so the clicks are very wide. I happen to like that. I know a lot of people don't. They want a lot of elevation per turn. I'm, I don't, but I can see why people like it. Yeah. But there's nothing at that weight that's close for any money. So that would be a really good crossover design. Also, 1500 bucks. Element Nexus 5 to 20 by 50. It's about 30 ounces. Um, more elevation adjustment is a little bit more, a little bit more of a uh, lean slightly more to the precision side than the, than the vortex I just mentioned. But still, a comparative compact package, everything tracks, everything works. It's not bad and it's not super heavy. When we're talking about crossover designs, if you want to do long range hunting and uh, competition stuff, I kind of want to keep the weight not much more than 30 ounces. I mean, stay under two pounds if I can. And that, unfortunately, um, makes it difficult for a lot of the larger scopes, right? Like, I love the Tangent 5 to 25 I have, right? That's 46 ounces, stuff like that. The Razor Gen 2 is 48 ounces. Uh, I mean, I'm just pathologically lazy. I don't want to carry that much. <laughs> Let's see. I need to give you a third one. 
under Turkey. Ordinarily, I would have said Mark 5, 3.6 to, 3 to 18 by 44, which I really, really like. But with scopes, front focal plane scopes, if you're going to use it for hunting, I really like having illumination. And illuminated model sneaks over the 2000 mm. line. But a ton of people get law enforcement or military discounts, so let's uh, mention it anyway. Uh, the new PR1 radical is quite nice. A general mill scale radical, illuminated version, normally I think it's $22, $2300. With the law mm -hmm. enforcement military discount, it sneaks under 2K. Um, it's a really nice compact design. Optically, other Mark Fives, the larger Mark Fives, are better. Uh, but 3.6 to 18 is very, very serviceable. And for the compact package you have as a crossover scope, it's really excellent. I think 26 and a half ounces in weight, if I remember correctly. Okay. Let's see uh, what else would be good under 2K that's not too heavy. They're all the usual suspects, the Razor Gen 2, Delta Striker, uh, Athlon, Kronos, and all these scopes that are they're quite nice. They just a little bit lean a little bit toward the big and heavy side. If you just have competition only, I, I, I go toward those. But if you are talking crossover use, I'd stick with 50 millimeter scopes. Let me see, I'm trying to think. I have this feeling that I'm forgetting something. So coming up shortly, Burris XTR3 is a very competent scope. There is a 3.3 to 18 model, but currently they're not illuminated. Uh, by the end of the year, they should have an illuminated version. And that's another, uh, you're seeing the trend, you know, 3.3 to 18 by 50 or thereabouts in that general range. I think that gives you a lot of capability in a comparatively compact and lightweight package. All right, going for the big bucks. 3,000 plus. Uh, this is strictly for competition. All right. Well, why is it strictly for competition? Uh, most of the, I mean, I think most of the most competitors that are looking to spend three grand on an optic, I would say I, it's very rare that we find All right. what a scope hunter. do you hunt with? What, what scope do I hunt with? Yes. Uh, three point, uh, the 318 call us. Exactly right. So, so I'm not the only one thinking about that, right? So there was, um, okay, for price is no object. There are a few 50 millimeter, a few 56 millimeter designs that are good, but honestly, most of them are good, right? Um, if you want a crossover scope, the best ones are Tangent Theta 3 to 15. I like the smaller one with a 30 millimeter tube because it's lighter. And for most normal use, it still has enough elevation adjustment. The color 318 is actually a nice scope. It's not my favorite because of the field of view being comparatively narrow, but it is a nice scope. Uh, Z-Comp 4 to 20 by 50 is up there. And I like this ultra short Schmidt. Um, until last past year, it would not make it to my list, uh, but uh, they have this new turret, this DT2 plus turret. That's just excellent. That's what, I, that's what I'm doing to this. I pour sand on it, go do bad things to it, and put it in a collimate and check tracking. It's been rock solid. So that's 50 millimeter scope. With 56, uh, Tangent is probably overall king of the heel and Z comp 5 to 27 by 56 is uh, like three hairs away. Yeah, really? Even with, of, the, even with the price difference? 
You you did you said three plus. You didn't say four no no no. I but but you said only three hairs away. Like I think there's a significant price differences in there between a Z comp and a and a, and a tangent theta. In terms of overall performance, they're pretty close. Tangent has better depth of field, and I prefer the the elevation turret on the tangent. The turret is just hypnotic. Yep. Um. The as you go up in price, the differences between scopes become small. Um, the I did a video on this a while back. Uh, where's the sweet spot for precision scopes? Right, the sweet spot is not at three grand. The sweet spot is in the fifteen hundred to two thousand dollar range. That's where you get the most for your money without giving up features. As you start going up from there, the differences are small. And if you are willing to drop four or five grand on a Z comp tangent, those differences should matter to you. Yeah. Okay. Great. Z comp and tangent are probably at the top, in my opinion, overall. Optical aminox is close. Mechanical, I think tangent and Z comp are better. Uh, with this new DT2 plus turret, I think the Schmitz are still very competitive. The 5 to 25 Schmitz is still very good. I like it more than the newer ones. Uh, like they have the 3 to 27 and uh, 5 to 45. I actually like those less than the original 5 to 25. Uh, what else? So if I don't so if I don't mention Carlos and Night Force, everybody starts yelling at me. There are a lot of fanboys out there. Um, they're competent. I think Carlos and Night Force think they're both at this stage overpriced. Carlos is mechanically excellent. Optically, they have some work to do, primarily because of field of view and depth of field. I was disappointed with the 5 to 25. That's the reason for the Colossus Undying Hatred for me. Um, and uh, Night Force 7 to 35 is really, really nice scope. And when they jacked up the price, I think it got too close to Zcom. If they kept it closer to 3K, I think it would definitely be on the list. It's really nice design. But at 3800, you should get a Zcom. It's a better design, better optics, better design. Um, that's a, those are, those are fair statements and I'm glad I asked you because them are fighting words, man. Yeah. <laughs> like you said, depending on who you talk to, there people are oh, going to sure. throw, throw, throw blasphemy out there. And then people are always going to be like, Oh, what are the, what are the pros using? It's like, you can give the top 10 guys, whatever freaking optic and guess and what they the yeah. they will do the same exact, they will, they will yeah. skull drag the rest of the field. So yeah. guys, uh, both of you will outshoot me with a six powers WFA, no matter what I have. Okay. Skill matters. There is something to be said for that, right? So yeah. as long as the optic is doing what it is that we tell it to do, and it's consistent Correct. and repeatable, it, it, it's it's a moot point. That, it, but it, no, it's not a moot point, right? Because meaning, but meaning all things being equal, like like you yeah. said, hey, you're going to beat me with a six power scope. Correct. Um, that's I guess that's what I'm saying. I mean, obviously, there's yeah, a lot yeah, of that's correct. So, but there is uh, there is another but there is uh, another quirk, right? So, like I said, I'm not a particularly good shot. Take me out of the equation. Between the two of you, you two are good shots. One of you is shooting a five to twenty five tangent, another six powers WFA. The one with the tangent is going is going is, is going to do better. Mm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Agreed. Yeah. I'm gonna For I'm me, gonna I'm gonna see better, and you you're know, gonna see better, better you're gonna contrast, see faster, better, better. you're gonna be able to pick up your target gadget, you'll have more time to build your position, you'll have better ability to see wind and to evaluate the conditions and all that sort of stuff, right? You need good gear to maximize your skills. Agreed. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you need skills to maximize good gear. Right? Yeah. Poor skills yeah. will not make up for gear. That's absolutely correct. Yep, that's a good way to put it. All right. 
Um, uh, so the honorable mention to this, one of the companies I like is March. Uh, they come out of the they come out of the target world. They're doing more with tactical stuff. They have two new models, the five to forty-two. That's what I had in my hand all this time, and they have a new one they designed with my input already to have a little bit more depth of field, four and a half to twenty-eight by fifty-two. It's conditional for now. Um, they are comparatively new. Five to forty-two. That one I have is a production model. It is very nice. It's a better target scope than a tangent. It's not a better practical precision scope than a tangent. The four and a half to 28, I'm supposed to get the final production version in a couple of months, so I'll do a full review. I have high hopes for it, but until I run it through its paces, I really don't know. That was sort of a, I tried to guide them to making something fairly compact with better depth of field and less more forgiving parallax than what they typically do, right? If you're enjoying also going into F-class type stuff, et cetera, then March starts looking really, really good. Amazing optics. Crazy center field resolution, good tracking and all that. For practical precision, depth of field to me is a huge deal. Like I said, that's why I don't like colors as much because with this new optic, they used to have a lot of depth of field. 525, you have to pass with the parallax. And depth of field is shallow. Mode March, more or less the same thing, just optics are better. But it's not as good as a Z compa tangent. Um, uh, Mark V would have been on my list I, for the money. I really, really like that scope. Uh, but uh, Mar uh, Leopold's radical strategy is mystifying to me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, uh, uh, I want a normal 10 to 50 meter radiant three radical with a nicely defined center aiming point. I don't want to go to the edges and going to the edges field of view. I will never use 30 mm radian of reticle holdover. I don't need it to look like a mosquito net. Um, I lean toward reticles like that. Okay. They have this PR2 now, a Leopold. This yeah. is a very competent reticle, but I don't think they illuminated it. Uh, and uh, as I get older, I really appreciate having available illumination against dark backgrounds. I appreciate that as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, just I don't, a little bit of illumination makes Just a little bit to me and give me a little bit of contrast, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, for the longest time, that was something that I struggled with, you know, loopholes, the reticle offerings. I mean, I love the TMR. I don't appreciate the fact that the illuminated version of the TMR is so massive. Yeah. that it's really, you know, I profess, I personally don't, don't like it. Um, but I have yet to shoot the, uh, the PR two. Um, I think the PR two has a lot of promise, um, for, mm -hmm. for the loopholes reticles and I'm, I'm anxious. I'm going to send a couple of my loopholes back to the, to the, uh, to the custom shop and have those reticles swapped out. But no, so I, first time I got a chance to see them live was at Compact Spot. I haven't shot with PR1 and PR2, but I, at least I got a chance to look through them and look at real things. And they look like perfectly competent designs. Mm -hmm. But so PR2 is a small, is a like an abbreviated three radical, let's call it that. And PR1 mm -hmm. is a mill scale. Explain this to me. And you're friends with Leupold guys, right? Like the Leupold guys don't like me, but they tolerate me. <laughs> right? So I have a perfectly reasonable working relationship with them, but I'm not their favorite person in the world. Um, uh, the few of them that know I exist, but um, 3.6 to 18 by 44 rifle scope. Why not put the PR2 
a theoretical in it for crossover people. Who will hold with the, the small Mark V, the PR2, the tree radical, is not available in it. Mm. That I just I didn't know that until you just let me know. Why? That's a great question. On the, for a smaller crossover scope, I will hold with the radical more than with the 5 to 25 or 7 to 35. Uh, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Okay. Makes no sense. In a seven to th- uh, PR two is available in a five to twenty five, and to the best of my knowledge, maybe they changed it. Not available in a seven to thirty five. If it's a competition scope, under what same conditions would you take a five to twenty five over seven to thirty five? Because you will never use five shooting plates. You may occasionally need thirty five to go look at a mirage. The the issue with 35, though, um, especially in the Mark V, is, is just straight up light transmission. At that magnification, the image is incredibly dark. Correct. And because exit people gets very small. But here's the catch, right? So when you're running it on 15 power, where you'll be doing most of your shooting, most people, or thereabouts, there's no real difference between 5 to 25 and 7 to 35, same objective. That's fair. The high-end magnification is only there for those few rare occasions where you could use it. You could use it, but I can make a good argument. Same business with the Night Force, right? If I was buying an attacker, I would absolutely buy 7 to 35 for competition, not the 5 to 25. They're both nice scopes. But I don't. So I've talked to a ton of PRS guys, right? I've never heard of anyone going below 8 or 9 for anything, right? And once in a blue moon, one will tell me, well, I wish I had a little more magnification because there was something moving out there and I just didn't quite, wasn't quite able. To see it right, uh, I that most people shoot in broadly similar way. If I have complicated environmental conditions, I will set up, I'll dial up the magnification, and I'll look around and try to read the conditions, and I'll dial back down to something more reasonable. Shoot there, okay. So, but they did not make the PR2 reticle available in the seven to thirty-five, at least not that I've seen. Yeah, no, I'm checking and, the website right now, yeah. Ilya. I'm checking the website and. Uh-huh. The PR2, yeah, the front focal plane PR2 is available in uh, 735 as well. Oh, it is available now. So they, yes, good. sir. Thank God. But still not eliminated, right? Uh, not that I'm seeing, no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so some of the things there are mystifying to me, but proliferating the PR2 radical across the product line definitely moves the Mark V high up in my ranking because I really like that scope. I like the 3.6218 by 44. I like the 735. I thought the designs were really, really competent. Um, just a little bit of a better system setup with the radicals and illumination, and it'll do really well. Is it better than the Tangent or Z-Comp or March? No. Is it better for the money? Yeah. That's all fair assessments, man. And um, if this is, you know, this is one of those things. Uh, you get, uh, there's a million different internet influencers, right? And they will tell you, oh, spend the money, spend 5K, etc." I can shoot anything I want. Like, like, there's a million scopes you see here I haven't paid for any of them. So you have to always, always kind of scale back and think about it a little bit and revisit stuff. What is good for the money, right? You, I feel you asked me about what is good for a particular price range. It's not the same thing as what is good for the money. Yeah. The right question to ask would have been, if you're spending your own money, what would you use? Yeah. Okay. That Because that is a very, very different answer than uh, what would you get uh, price no object or at a particular uh, price range. Yeah. Right. 
and what would what I would use is uh, the scopes in the fifteen hundred to two thousand dollar range. Yeah, this was uh this was awesome, uh, Ilya. I think um wait, this definitely uh deserves a dash too because I wanna I, I wanna dive a little deeper into like not how optic is made, but you know <clears throat> some of the small things that that you know uh, shooters might see with their optics. Like you said, you know when they dial and they could potentially see a, a tenth shift uh, windage wise, you know uh, a tenth and stuff like that. Just like the small intricacies um of of the optics that i would say would an advanced level shooter should know about purchasing an optic sure absolutely you guys do your classes all over the country right mm-hmm. yep do you ever come out to southwest out this way we you know what man we've we've been trying to find a location in arizona for the longest time okay um or in new mexico is always is there i've shot i've shot out at blue steel several times i've shot the steel mm-hmm. safari out there a bunch um but if there's if there's any opportunity to bring class to new mexico or the southwest new mexico arizona area we definitely want to take advantage of that opportunity well if i hear if i'll, I'll, I'll last around that would be good mm-hmm. and then i'll drive up and we can do this live that would be awesome yeah that would be awesome so- for sure. Phoenix is about six hour drive from me. So it's okay. reasonable. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Ilya, um, real quick for, for these guys to be able to um, maybe get a hold of you or follow you, uh, whether it be Instagram, uh, your uh, site, uh, do you have that um, for these uh, guys? So, generally, if you search for Dark Lord of Optics, I will pop up like Beetlejuice. Uh, somebody called me that years ago. I thought it was hilarious. So I, I adopted it. Uh, and it uh, kind of got stuck. There's darklordofoptics.com and darklordofoptics on Instagram, Facebook. I'm fairly prolific on Sniper's Hide and a few other places. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, well, uh, Ilya, again, thank you for your time. Uh, this was great. I have a, a ton of notes and, I, and I'm probably going to have to re-listen to this a couple times to to really let it soak in because I, I think what I what I uh, loved about is with certain explanations you had um you know when, when we talk about parallax and we talk about actually the the optical system um that was that was really neat and uh it was actually everything that i i imagined this podcast would uh, turn into so oh, excellent i'm happy yeah i just checked i just checked your your uh your feed there that's that's a good that's a good odd ad oh thank you that's a good i enjoyed that so i'm just getting into hunting this year like i said i didn't grow up with this Living in LA, none of my friends hunted, so I moved out here. And a few more opportunities. I've got a pig hunt next week, and I have a elk tag in New Mexico here in December. Muzzleloader, nice. muzzleloader, freaking elk in that's, New Mexico mountains. That's that's a killer tag. Both that's you awesome. two, man. Both you two. Yeah, I've got an elk tag out here in Wyoming. He's got bull tags, except Caleb. Well, year. so my, my so <laughs> I uh, I didn't get this fed by accident. I have a cow tag, and I'm and I want the meat. Oh, oh nice. Right. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Nice. That's, That's uh, my, 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 and I, until I have all the freezers full of stuff, I couldn't care less about trophies. No, awesome. Yeah. You can't eat the horns, man. Yeah, that's right. Uh, sounded like a challenge, but yeah. <laughs> cool. Very fibrous. Ilya, <laughs> uh, this was a lot of fun, man. I, I, I very much appreciate the conversation nice. and the knowledge. It's, a, it's good to hear a different perspective um, from somebody that is completely and totally unbiased in terms of. Yep brand loyalty, manufacturer, all those things. Cause that's really tough to come by these days. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, I have no way of evaluating whether I'm unbiased or not. There are people at all of these companies that I genuinely like, um, but from a corporate standpoint, they all suck. <laughs>
So, <laughs> and I'm kind of uh, like I said, my loyalty is to the consumer. For That's sure. why I'm setting up my presence differently. I've never had done a sponsored video. I don't do any of this sort of stuff, and I'm changing my web presence so that I'm supported by the consumer, awesome. not by anything else. Yeah, awesome, man. So. Well, thanks so much, Ilya. We really appreciate your time. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. All right, guys. Uh, again, um, check them out, uh, whether it be Instagram or online. And uh, I'm sure Ilya will be back here. And um, uh, we appreciate you guys listening in. Uh, we will see you guys hopefully in a week. Until then, you guys know the drill. Keep your face on the gun. <laughs>